Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Success Harbor Podcast with George Mazaros, where it's all about making success happen for you. Hi, everyone. This is George Mazaros with Success Harbor, and I have Lucas Carlson with me. Lucas is a serial entrepreneur. After starting multiple businesses, he started AppFog in 2010. He raised almost $10 million in venture capital and was acquired in 2013 after signing up over 100,000 developers. Lucas is also an author. He wrote Ruby Cookbook, which was published by O'Reilly in 2006 and has sold over 20,000 copies, which is a big number for a programming book. Lucas is also a keynote speaker. He spoke at nearly 30 conferences around the world. And last but not least, he's an open source programmer whose code has been used by over half a million people. Welcome. Thank you so much, George. I really appreciate this time and I'm really excited to talk to you. It's great to have you, uh, Lucas. Uh, thanks, thanks for being here on Success Harbor. When I read your About page, it really resonated with me. And I think I even mentioned that maybe in the email when I asked you to come on Success Harbor, especially the part that said there is a big myth that all founders and entrepreneurs around the world live great lives, retire rich and famous. The truth is that most of us struggle pay te- paycheck to paycheck and from failure to failure. What did you, why did you write this post? Why was it, well, not even post, but why did you want to put this on your about page? Why was this important to you? To me, this is important because this was me. This is my life. This is, uh, you, you look at the lives of successful entrepreneurs and it's so easy to write off the failures. And there's this saying that, that people don't remember your failures. They only remember your big successes. And uh, it's easy to say that. But, but you know, for me, this, I was not like Richard Branson. Richard Branson uh, has kind of this gut instinct where uh, one of his first businesses was the, the Virgin. He, he did some stuff before it, but very quickly he got into the Virgin uh, record stuff and, uh, and it really grew very quickly for him. For me, it's been a long struggle. For me, it's been uh, wanting to be an entrepreneur, wanting to have success and, and struggling to find it uh, with lots of ideas. I've had tons of ideas. It's been uh, over 10 years of trying small projects on the side and, and trying to find success. Uh, and it took me a long time to, to finally find an idea like AppFog that that could raise venture capital and that was acquired. That's uh, so to me, it's, it's been a long struggle. It continues to be, it's something that I'm deeply passionate about. And if there's any way that I can help people uh, like me not spend 10 years uh, struggling before they, they really find their, their big calling uh, that would, that would mean a lot to me to help people do that. So you mentioned that for 10 years you've been learning, you've been struggling, going from one idea to the other. Why haven't you given up? I mean, you're a very skilled, uh, accomplished programmer. You could have, you know, gotten a job somewhere, make a lot of money and just be happy. Why not give up, uh, your whole, you know, your dream of, uh, of being an entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I think it, it's got a deeper answer than a lot of people give it credit for. I feel like um, on the on the surface, the the easy answer is money. Like the easy answer is uh, you can make lots of money programming, but but you know a lot of entrepreneurs they want to make enough money that they never have to work again in their lives. They want to retire young. They want to spend time with their family. I certainly did. I I really. I love my wife. I've been with her for 12 years, and uh, I, I I just want to spend all of my waking hours with her if I want. Like I obviously I'm not going to retire. I'm I'm just just over 30 years old. I but uh, I I want that choice. I want to have that flexibility. Uh, and I thought that entrepreneurship was the way to do it. Sure, I could make a paycheck uh, writing code. But I wanted to uh, to be able to make enough money to uh, spend time the way I wanted to spend it. Uh, and I thought money was the answer. And I thought entrepreneurship was my ticket to money. Uh, but I think that that's, that's not enough of a reason. That's not enough of a reason to struggle for 10 years. It's like uh, 10 years is a long time. And if, if uh, money is all you're after, it's one of those things that's not enough of a motivation to to keep you going. So it had to be something deeper than money. And it's actually been a long journey for me to discover what it is that's deeper than money. And so uh, the next gen, like if that's the first order of approximation, the next order of approximation might be uh, 
uh, well, I want to change the world. And so this, this might be another kind of motivation uh, for why I kept struggling for 10 years is I wanted to change the world for the better. I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, and this is all true. It's not, it's not that that isn't true, but just as much as I wanted money, I also wanted to make a difference. I wanted to leave a stamp. I wanted to, uh, you know, feel like my, my contribution mattered to the world. What were some of the things you wanted to change? Uh, I, well, so for example, with, with AppFog, I wanted to build a service that changed the way people deploy code to the cloud. So the, the AppFog company was a company that, uh, <clears throat> helped people write code to things like Amazon Web Services easier without having to figure out all the details of doing stuff on Amazon Web Services. So fundamentally, I wanted to like change their lives for the better, uh, in, in that kind of context. Uh, but <clears throat> I think that uh, having thought about it even more, I think that's, that's not even why. Like, th that's only another order of approximation uh, as to why I struggled for 10 years. I think that it, it goes deeper than that. Uh, because as much as uh, the altruistic wanting to change the world is kind of a, uh, a great ideal, uh, why do you want to change the world? What is it about changing the world that, that makes you struggle and stay up uh, till 2 a.m., 4 a.m., 6 a.m. Uh, every night? What is it that, that makes you work crazy hours? Uh, you know, maybe it's changing the world, but usually it's something even deeper than that. So the next layer down is to, uh, to really think, why is it that you want to change the world? Well, uh, now, I find that a lot of entrepreneurs share this trait, uh, not all of them, but I think a lot of them do. And for me, I certainly did, which is that it's not just about changing the world. Uh, it's about filling a gap that's inside of you. It's about feeling like you have something to prove. It's like a chip on your shoulder. Like you have something to prove, not just by changing the world, not just by making money, but like it's something you want to change something you want you want to do this so badly that you want you want to feel whole you want to feel like entrepreneurship is a path to prove to the world that you're actually worthy mm -hmm. uh and that's that's getting a lot closer to why I do this than than money or changing the world is uh it, I have a chip on the shoulder to prove something to the world uh, and did I think, something happen to you earlier in your career or, or, you know, I mean, I don't know where this comes from. I'm just trying to understand it. Uh, or, or do you even understand where this comes from in, within your own life? Everybody has a different reason. It's, uh, everyone has a different reason to have a chip on their shoulder. Uh, everyone has a different thing to prove. Uh, some people might uh, say that it's, it's because of their father not paying enough attention or not giving approval. Some people it's, uh, you know, uh, dealing with addiction. Some people it's there's all sorts of reasons that people have chips on their shoulders. I have I have my own reasons. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, it once you outgrow that, once you're once you've become uh, a full adult, you know, those chips on the shoulders, they transfer, but they're different. And a lot of people don't even realize that you're not trying to get your father's approval. You're not trying to fill the gaps of your childhood. You're trying to feel like you yourself are whole. You're trying to feel like, like, uh, you're trying to prove it to yourself. You think you might be trying to prove it to your dad or to your parents or to your, to your siblings or to your uncle. Uh, you're not. You're actually just trying to prove it to yourself. And, and I think entrepreneurship, uh, for me, is a journey to prove to myself uh, the worthiness of life. Uh, that that makes sense. You ha you have some really interesting articles on on your on your sites, and one of them is uh, the number one fatal flaw in most startup ideas. Why did you want to write this post? And, and can you give us uh, just a, a brief rundown of what it's about and why it's important to you? Yeah, this is uh, one of my favorites. I, I I'm glad you bring it up because uh, it's one of those things that. 
I've looked back at the last 10 years and I've asked myself, what is it that I did for 10 years that I did wrong? And, and what was different about AppFog? What, what made AppFog the company that could raise $10 million and, and be acquired? Whereas all of my other ideas, uh, I, I struggled to get anybody interested. And uh, when I really thought about that and, and uh, reflected back, it, it really boiled down to one thing. And that one thing was uh, really figuring out if you are solving a problem that people know they have or if you're solving a problem that people don't know they have. Because what I did for 10 years was I tried to solve the biggest problems I could in small niches. Uh, but what I ended up doing was solving problems people had no clue they had. So uh, the the reason I, I kind of... Um, uh, pick those ideas, and it's it's typical for entrepreneurs to pick ideas that people solve problems people don't know they have. Because entrepreneurs, they tend to think, well, if I solve this problem, it's a huge problem people don't know they have. Once they see it, once they uh, come to my web page and actually look at this, they're going to be like, wow, I didn't know I had that problem. So this is this this is a great solution, uh, and it makes my life better in ways that I didn't even know I had. The problem with this kind of thinking is that if people don't know that they have a problem, they're not looking for solutions. So you might, it might be true that when they come to your site, they, they're amazed and wowed and, and overwhelmed uh, by the value you've added. The problem is that people never come to the site in the first place because they don't even know that they have a problem. So the, uh, the example for me, kind of a prototype of this, is one of the, uh, the the businesses that I started before AppFog uh, was a, a wedding registry site. And it was a wedding site that um, I was just getting married. So I thought, oh, this is great. I'm getting married to my wife. I've been with her for a while. We don't need pots and pans because we've been living together for a while. We already have pots and pans. Wouldn't it be great to um, have a wedding registry system where people could register for things like their vacation, their honeymoon, their uh, their wedding photos, you know, things that could be more practical than than stuff that we already had. So I thought, wow, this is a great idea. You know, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm going to I'm going to fix this problem. So I build this this system. And I think to myself, uh, it, to me, it was perfectly logical, uh, but but it missed this fatal flaw. I thought, well, OK, I don't know how to get in front of wedding couples. But I know how to get in front of in front of the wedding vendors because wedding vendors, like I'm talking to them right now. I, I'm I'm having my wedding and so I'm talking to vendors. I can drive around town and I can talk to lots of vendors. I can look up the yellow book and I know how to talk to vendors. So I'm going to make this wedding registry system something where the vendors sign up for it and then they offer it to their clients. And so every time I sign up one wedding vendor, their clients are going to become uh, customers of my system for life. Like every time a new wedding couple comes in, then I have a new client for, for this wedding registry system. So I thought it was genius. I thought it, it how could it fail? It's, it's going to make these wedding vendors more money, which is what they want. Uh, it's going to solve the problem for wedding couples. So I thought this is such a great idea and I don't know how to talk to wedding couples. So I'm going to, uh, set it up for wedding vendors instead. So I thought, and, and and it all makes sense logically. Uh, so I did this, I built it, uh, and spent lots of time building it. And then I did, I went on the street and I, I set up appointments. I went to the yellow book and I talked to wedding vendors and, uh, and ultimately you can guess where the story ends. It completely failed. And it wasn't that, that, the wedding vendors didn't want more money. So I, you know, when I pitched them, they're like, Oh yeah, sure. I'd, I'd like more money. Uh, the, the ultimate problem was the wedding vendors didn't know they had this problem because the, the wedding vendors, they didn't know that they, they didn't, they weren't looking for a system that let wedding couples, um, do registry. It wasn't something that they was top of mind. It wasn't one of their top concerns. Uh, and so ultimately, they weren't looking for this solution. Uh, and so I didn't get any traction. People didn't sign up for it like I thought they would. And I gave up on the idea. Uh, a year later, 
an, an almost exact copy of what I had done showed up, raised millions of dollars, and was a highly successful business. And do you want to know so, the one? So why, why, why were they successful and why weren't you successful? Uh, it's, it, in retrospect, it is so obvious. It is because what they did is they uh, solved a problem for people that knew they had a problem. They had built it almost exactly the same, except they had targeted the wedding couples, which are the people that have the problem in the first place. The wedding vendors didn't have the problem of, of wanting wedding couples to have a wedding registry with them. That wasn't their problem. The wedding couples were the ones that wanted to have registries of stuff that wasn't standard stuff. And I should have known that because that was me. I, that was the problem I was facing. Uh, it was just that I was, I thought to myself, well, I don't know how to talk to wedding couples around the world because I don't know how to communicate with them. So before even thinking like, well, let me figure out how, I just gave up on that. Instead of saying how, like, inst I don't know how to, so, uh, so let me figure out how and build a content marketing yeah. system uh, around it. So so you couldn't talk to the people that you want to, so you just talk to somebody else, and that's just you know you just can't get away with that. And there wasn't Facebook back then, right? So you could put on some Facebook ads and target people really closely, you know, people that are about to get married or that just got engaged or whatever. So some of those tools were not yet available. Yep, and that's exactly what the competition did. The the people that succeeded, uh, they targeted the um, the wedding couples they they created a content marketing system around wedding couples uh so that things like facebook and twitter uh exploded um and and they they drove lots of uh of, of people into this system and, and it was a great success and it looking back it's so sad that i gave up when i did because i had built this system that could have i could have changed it just a little bit you know, I was so close. They say in golf that the difference between a, a great swing and a, and a terrible one is less than a millimeter. And uh, and I was less than a millimeter away from a great idea, and I gave up on it. Um, so so what? How do we do this? So I mean, you know, you you figured it out by the time you started AppFog. You you figured it because I I read this uh, post on your on your website when uh, you know you mentioned that uh, I had tons of terrible ideas before I started AppFog. Um, you made every mistake in a book, uh, but when you started, uh, P which was PHP Fog initially instead of uh, AppFog, all you did was put a landing page up, and in one night. You had 800 or so, 800 yeah, people that signed up. That's right. So, so how did you feel when that happened uh, compared to the story with uh, wedding registry? Well, I was, it was, it was incredible because uh, I had spent months and months of months of effort uh, on wedding registry, and uh, and I had barely gotten you know 40 people signed up for wedding registry, and then in one night without having spent any work basically. Uh, in one night of work, I had 800 people signed up, and that was just the first night. Two weeks later, I had 2,000 people. Uh, a month after that, I had 4,000 people, and I hadn't done any more promotion. I didn't, I didn't go out actively promoting this. It was, it was an idea. I had tapped into an idea that people knew. It was a problem people knew they had. I had really Is it a conscious thing i mean you you mentioned you tapped into that idea where did, i mean did you know this did you, was it just a hunch uh well so the thing was that uh it was a hunch it was to me i couldn't before i had done this landing page concept to the to to test the idea i to me it was just another idea and i have a dozen ideas a day so i couldn't tell a good idea from a bad idea if i wanted to but um, so to me, it was just another idea. And uh, until I did this and, and tested it uh, and found out that I'm not just the only person that, that wants this and I'm not the only person who knows they want this. Uh, people not only know they want this, they're clamoring for this. They're, they're desperate for this. Um, and I didn't know that they were that desperate. But uh, but, in you know, I I know so many people that spend six, 12 months developing their, their projects, uh, building up their businesses, um, and then they open the doors and try to get people to sign up and, and nobody comes. And, and I know that 
I know people who are doing that right now, uh, and I used to do that myself. But now I know the difference. Now I know that you don't need to spend uh, six months working on uh, a project in order to be able to test the demand for it. That that there's finding out if people actually know they have a problem that that you want to solve is uh, you don't need to actually uh, spend all your time building products. If you if you really focus in on testing and seeing if people actually, if, if you can figure out how to tap into the kind of people who know they have a problem and you can solve it for them, um, then that's when you should double down and start building that product as quickly as you can. So not only that you don't need to, but it's actually pretty stupid to do it, right? So, so how do you stop yourself as an entrepreneur uh, from trying to build? Because building something, it's almost like avoiding the bigger question. That is absolutely Cause, right. Because you, you just keep yourself busy. It's almost like laziness in a way. Yes. Uh, being busy with uh, working on something you don't know if anybody really wants is a lot easier than finding you know people that are about to get married yes. or or whatever. So so did you change your thinking or or was this was it luck that did you lock out with App Fog or you know what advice do you have for people that are you know maybe at that stage where they have an idea but uh, but they don't know what to do. So uh, with AppFog, I got lucky. And this is one of the reasons that I started this blog at craftsmanfounder.com. And one of the reasons I'm talking is because uh, I, don't, I don't want other people to have to get lucky. I don't want other people to spend 10 years trying things uh, in order to, uh, to happen to start thinking correctly about how to build businesses. Uh, I, I, you don't have to struggle the way I did. Uh, if you change your mindset about things. Uh, and this is, it's easy to say, but hard to do. It's one of those things that, um, just like you said, uh, it's easier to say, oh, I have an idea and I'm going to just double down and build the idea before I test it. Uh, it's easier to do that. And why is it easier? Uh, because a lot of time, uh, fundamentally, people are afri- afraid to find out. They're kind of, People fall in love with their ideas uh, so quickly that they're afraid to find out that people don't want what they're going to build. So instead of going out and uh, finding out if people actually want it or not, they, they hide in this shell and start building it themselves or, or working on plans or working on business models. They do everything except for validate the idea because they, they're, fundamentally they're scared that people won't want it and they don't want to find out that people don't want it. So they don't want to put a link up on, on hacker news or they don't want to put a, a link up uh, on Reddit and, and have nobody sign up for it because then like it crushes their dreams. But if you stop falling in love with your ideas uh, prematurely and, uh, and start realizing that, you know, there's a Venn diagram of stuff you're passionate about, ideas you love, stuff you want to do, uh, that's in one, one circle in the Venn diagram. And the other circle is stuff other people want, stuff millions of people want, stuff that, that the world wants. And there's this small overlap. There's this tiny overlap. Uh, and you're looking for ideas that fit in that intersection of those two uh, circles. Uh, the problem is a lot of people... They come up with an idea that they love so much that they, they, they're like, I love this so much. I'm so passionate about it that I'm sure that the world wants this. I'm sure that if I love this so much that the world wants it. But that's not the case. Most ideas uh, you're just so passionate about, but either a small portion of the world wants it or nobody wants it. It's like you have to. And here's the big kicker for me. This is the thing that, that I wish somebody had told me is you can't drag an idea from one part of the Venn diagram to another. You can't drag it from a place you're passionate about into that middle intersection. The middle intersection, that sweet spot, that honey spot, that's like hitting the golf ball right in the sweet spot. Uh, You can't drag, so you can't spend six months, 12 months, two years on an idea and and hope that you just have to put some more effort into it and you'll drag it into that middle section. 
you really have to start testing your ideas and testing to see if people not only have this problem, but they know they have this problem, they're looking for this problem. So whether that's testing it through social networks, whether it's testing it through ad buys, like the worst thing you can do is just not test your assumptions at all. And, uh, and so that's kind of uh, uh, the number one fatal flaw is, is building something that people don't know they want. So, in other words, if if I understand you correctly, no amount of passion will make up for demand. That's right. So, and and you know, I mean that that that's so important because I think so many people are are, are struggling with that with that because sometimes you know here you know scratch your own itch, right? You know, and that's so wrong in 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 some ways. I mean, it makes sense in in some ways, but I mean that does that doesn't mean anything, you know, just because you have a need for something. You know, that doesn't mean you should build a business around it. That's exactly right. And it's not that you shouldn't scratch your own itch. It's that you should scratch. You should look for itches to scratch that the rest of the world has that itch, too. It's it's slightly different. It's it's like some people say scratch your own itch. Some people say uh, uh, don't scratch your own itch. Look for something that the world wants. What I say is look for something the world wants that is also your itch. You have to... Find that thing that that is authentically something that you are passionate about and also the world is passionate about, the world demands. Because, uh, and I've made this mistake, I've done things where I've tried to do startups that I thought the world demanded, but I wasn't passionate about. So I've done these things and, and they, they, it's kind of obvious when you say it out loud, but in, in the moment you think, well, I'm sick and tired of you know, having these itches and uh, nobody wanting them. So I'm just going to look for something where there seems to be demand for this already uh, and screw my own itches, screw my own passions. I'm just going to like figure out something the world wants and I'll serve them. It's like, I don't care about cheeseburgers, but I'm going to make the best cheeseburger and, and sell that to the world. That's also a mistake. It's too far on the other side. You really have to find something that you are passionate about because that comes across. You can't fake authenticity. And if you're creating a great service, you have to authentically like be, be serving these customers. It can't be, uh, you know, uh, trying to solve an itch just because you think it's somebody else's itch. So if you if you were to start a business today, or let's say you had an idea for something, you mentioned earlier that you have ideas all the time. Um, where would you look to find people who know they have a problem uh, to kind of validate your idea. This is, this is kind of the, um, the, the $10 million question uh, is can you figure out how to talk to those people? Uh, do you know uh, who they are and what they read, what their news uh, consumptions are, who influences them? Uh, what are their behavior patterns? Uh, and so it, for me, with AppFog, it was a very natural fit because uh, I was a programmer for 20 years, and this was, I was building a startup for programmers, so I knew exactly what they read, and I knew exactly where they read it. I knew exactly what influenced them, and so I could put up a landing page, and I could target the places that I knew they hung out, and uh, so I instantly had this channel. If you don't have this channel with your ideal audience, your ideal customer, uh, the the first thing you need to do is figure out what the channel is, figure out what they read and where they read it and where they spend their time. And and also uh, having empathy for them is a very important part of this. It's having empathy for um, understanding what it is that are their hopes and their dreams, their fears and their frustrations. If you can make a list of uh, 50 or 100 uh, of their hopes and dreams and their fears and frustrations, if you make that list and really deeply understand what it is that these people care about, if I had made that list with the uh, wedding registry, I would have realized that wedding vendors, they don't, they, their hopes don't match up with what I was building for them. Their dreams, their frustrations, um, you know, they want to book more clients. They, they don't really care about selling their clients' registry systems. Uh, so, so I was, so I didn't really tap into 
the 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 deep desires of of my customers. So understanding what it is they read, and if you don't know how to get into those channels, uh, spending time in like for me. Uh, uh, when I didn't know how to reach wedding couples, I just gave up. Uh, but that's that was such an amateur mistake of mine. I could have spent time and invested time and, and researched it. I could have spent time saying, okay, well, what things do they read and how do they, what influences them and where do they hang out and who do they talk to and what are their uh, sources of information and how can I get my message into those channels? Um, and if I had done all of that up front before I had built the product, uh, I'm, I'm certain things would have been 100% different for me. Great. Uh, I want to talk about another post that I found really uh, interesting on, on your blog. Uh, and the title is uh, Incubators Are Bullshit. And why do you say that? It seems like everybody wants to get in one. Yes. Uh, so... Why do I say that? That's a a great question. So why I say that is because uh, is that people generally, uh, so let me say this first. Uh, I have advised hundreds of of entrepreneurs over the years. Uh, I've I've spent time with them. I've spent time with, with many, many entrepreneurs who have gone through incubator programs. And the reason I say incubators are bullshit is because the entrepreneurs that I've spent time with that are going through incubator programs, uh, they're doing it all wrong. They're doing the things that the incubator programs are supposed to help with uh, all wrong. And I think it's because the, what's hap- the, the structure of... The- Give us some examples of the things that they do wrong. Yeah, uh, well, networking for one. So one of the biggest reasons people say they want to get into an incubator is that they don't have a network. They don't know, uh, they don't know investors. They don't know uh, advisors. They don't know mentors. Uh, and so it's like, I don't have a network. And so I need to get into an incubator program so that the incubator program can give me a network. And that way I can raise money. Then that way I can, you know, unlock, you know, my customers and have all these relationships. Uh, the problem is that the way incubators are set up, isn't actually ideal for creating uh, a network. It's not actually built for creating long-term relationships with people. So when people go into these incubators, uh, they get introduced to like 50 or 100, you know, people, advisors, mentors, venture capitalists, angel investors. And what happens is they do it in such a short amount of time that uh, they end up uh, doing it all wrong. Because the, the thing about your network and your relationships is that it's not about quantity, it's about quality. And uh, incubators stress quantity over quality. And, uh, and they, they are constantly, uh, you're very busy in an incubator. So you can't spend time uh, building authentic relationships. You, can, you, know, you have a 30-minute meeting with somebody and then you never follow up. Because you're way too busy because the incubator is asking you to have, prepare for your, your big pitch at the end of this thing and, and everything's supposed to go wonderfully. But what you miss in the process is you miss creating deep, lasting relationships with people, which is what a network is all about. A network isn't about shaking hands and spending 30 minutes with 100 people. It's about creating uh, real connections with a few people, a few people that can really make a difference in your life. Uh, that's so much more important than than shaking hands with people. And it's not you're so busy while you're in an incubator that that you don't even have time to to pause and breathe and say, you know, I'm going to I want to get to know you better. Like when you're talking to uh, an investor, uh, you know, you spend 30 minutes or an hour with them. You, you most of the time you have talked the whole time. You haven't even let them get an, a word in edgewise. And so uh, there's no way that you're building a relationship because you, haven't, you don't know the first thing about that investor. Every investor has an investment thesis. They have a background. They, a lot of them have done startups in the past or they, they have uh, ideas and philosophies. Uh, and biases. And biases. And in order to raise money, you're going to have to get to know those things. 
but you can't get to know those things if you don't ask them questions. And, and if you're just, if you think of it like a sausage factory, uh, you're never going to build an authentic relationship and you're probably not going to uh, raise money. And this is one of the other things that I talk about in my posts is look at the track record of a lot of the um, incubators that, that, uh, that are out there and the, the track record's not that amazing. You, you, the, the, there are exceptions and Y Combinator is the obvious big exception of, of companies that great companies coming out of Y Combinator. But for a lot of incubators, uh, especially the small ones, uh, they have never incubated a great company. They've never incubated a lot of the, the companies, uh, never have raised venture capital. So, so you're going in and you're saying, great, I need to get in this incubator in order to build uh, relationships with, with investors. But then look at the track record and these incubators, nobody has raised money from the companies coming out of here. So what's the point? What, what are you trying to do if you're being busy for, for six to eight weeks um, and, and at the end of it, uh, your chances are no better than, than anybody else's. And the other thing that I mentioned in the post is you can do all this stuff yourself. Like a lot of people, it's an excuse in their head. They say, well, I don't have a network and I need, I need something like an incubator in order to build one. That's an excuse that people have been networking and building networks for, for decades, for centuries without incubators. Uh, incubators are this new thing uh, and nobody, nobody before you, uh, you know, in, uh, <clears throat> nobody before incubators had incubators and there's been lots of success building networks and building relationships with investors. Uh, so there is a tried and true method for doing this. Uh, and the method is uh, to spend time building authentic relationships uh, with people. And that's not what incubators are set up to do. Incubators are set up to, uh, to make you very busy and to be a sausage factory and give you lots of introductions. And it's very, very lightweight introductions. Um, and if you don't do the work, it's not that going in an incubator is a recipe for failure. But if you don't do the work that you would have to do outside of the incubator, which is build the real uh, relationships, uh, if you're not doing that, then then and you don't need to do that within the context of an incubator. You, you can give yourself permission. You can give yourself permission to, to build your network uh, and stop using the excuse that you don't have one. Nobody has one when they start. Very few people. So aside, so, so networking is, uh, you know, let's say, you know, it's a myth that you need to join uh, an incubator to, to build your network. Yeah. So let's say that's one. What else about incubators that you think are not what seem to be? Uh, <clears throat> the thing, the, the other thing is that, uh, uh, a lot of incubators say that, that, you know, they'll teach you how to do the stuff of startups. But th what I see is that they give you a lot of busy work. And the thing that, that, uh, I feel like startups have lots of time and not a lot of money at the early stages. And so if you are, if you realize that, you realize that, your only asset is time. You don't have money. Uh, you don't have, uh, you know, employees. All you have is your time. So how you spend your time is the most valuable thing you have. And uh, you can either uh, accept that fact or you can, like, ignore it. And when you go into an incubator, the incubator asks you to do tons and tons of busy work. And what that does is it fills up your time. And, and the reason it makes sense is because, well, we're an incubator, so we should be adding value. So we, you should be doing our exercises. And so, but what that does is it wastes your time. And uh, your time could be much better spent uh, doing the real work. Uh, if, if you spent the amount of time uh, that incubators ask you to do, uh, if you spent six to eight weeks where all you did was talk to customers, you'd be much better off than, than spending six to eight weeks in an incubator. And you might say, well, I can't talk to customers un unless I get in an incubator. That's, that's bullshit. That's just a, that's a story you're telling yourself. Uh, well, they can give me a better network of, of, uh, of customers. You know, 
do it like you're just not giving yourself permission to do the work yourself. And uh, it's it's very rewarding work, uh, but you have to dedicate yourself to it. And it's uh, if you spent all of your time talking to customers, uh, it would be much better spent. If you spent your time uh, building authentic, deep relationships that, that can help build your career, that's that's a much better way to spend your time um, and than, than all the work that's being asked for you within a startup incubator. Wow, that's uh, that's uh, that's a different viewpoint. I think I don't know why people think that, but I mean, you know, I mean, it makes sense. It's kind of like a club system that you kind of want to belong to to the, to the incubator club, and and you know, if you get in, then you're like you're one of the in people. But is it going to really help you succeed, or like you said, it doesn't really make a, a difference for most most that that participate? Yep. Yeah, tons of big companies were started. Uh, just just think about the ones that started in incubators. It's very few, and, and there are only a few incubators that have created big companies. So if if you want to uh, be like a big company, um, you know, obviously people have done it uh, without these for a long time. So uh, just I want to touch on uh, your exit from from Epfog uh, in 2013. Um, it, it was acquired. That's right. Fog was acquired, and you stayed on as a chief innovation officer. That's right. And are you still uh, in that position yeah. today? Yes, that's right. And so, what is that experience like going from uh, founder, or I mean, you're still the founder, but you're you know you're now part of a much larger uh, team. Yeah. How how does that work for you? Uh, it is incredible. Uh, first of all, CenturyLink is treating me fantastic, um, which. I'm very glad. I know that there are horror stories out there. I know that that not all of the um, acquisitions uh, happen this way. I'm very grateful for uh, for having found a company that that treats me really good. Um, And (coughs) excuse me. Uh, The the experience has been really interesting. It's been totally eye opening to deeply understand what what it's like to work in a big company. I, I had, uh, for me, I've never actually worked uh, at a company bigger than a few hundred people before this acquisition. And now I'm working at a company with 50,000 people. And understanding how big companies work and what their motivations are and, and understanding uh, the way they, they think uh, is completely eye-opening to me. And, and in some ways, I almost wish that I had uh, worked at a big company earlier on in my career just to understand this um, because I don't think that I really understood how this worked um, until now. And it's really interesting. I think. How would it help you? So let's say if you went back to the beginning of, of AppFog, uh, the experience that you're gaining now as the C- chief Info- innovation officer, how would that help you if you started over? Well, understanding that, uh, you know, big companies. Uh, they have aspirations and goals, uh, just like startups do. Uh, but then the the way that they're set up, uh, because fun- fundamentally they have so many people uh, at the company, uh, and and they usually have incumbent revenue. Uh, if you haven't read Innovator's Dilemma, you really need to read that uh, in order to understand that big companies they want to stay ahead of things. They want to. Uh, be able to uh, to create new forms of revenue and do new work just like startups do, but they're held back by things like their legacy revenues. They're he- held back by thinking the way that uh, you know it, uh, <clears throat> the horse and buggy to the car transition is is a great uh, example, a metaphor of the innovator's dilemma because you know all of these buggy companies. We're so busy selling horse and buggies that they they totally like couldn't fathom what it was like to sell cars, and so they all disappeared. That none of these companies transitioned from a horse and buggy company into uh, a car company, and it's not that they didn't want to uh, uh, fundamentally transition and make lots of money selling cars. They it's it's very hard for them because the, their system is set up 
uh, incumbently to to sell horse and buggies. So the way of thinking about building and selling cars is so foreign uh, that it's very hard. Once you have momentum and you're uh, you're already doing things in a certain way, it's very hard to do them in a different way, which is uh, part of the reason why acquisitions happen in the first place is because big companies can't move as quickly uh, and understanding why is really interesting uh, and important, understanding that psychology. And so sometimes they have to go out and they have to buy smaller companies who have been able to, to innovate in ways that they wish they could. Now, why is that important? Because uh, I ne- not understanding that when I was building companies, you know, part of it, if you, you remember our Venn diagram discussion, uh, there's things that you want, there's things that the world wants, that people want, that customers, consumers want. Now we can add a third uh, circle to this Venn diagram. Things that, uh, that big companies uh, want or need. So now if, if you aspire to, um, to sell your company, to, to get acquired one day, uh, you could also add this third Venn diagram and think about what is it that what companies should be thinking about this kind of technology or this kind of company or selling this kind of product, but but simply can't because they're in an innovator's dilemma and they have too much legacy revenue in other ways. So if you add that to your equation when you're coming up with your startup ideas, if you can find the intersection of those three things, you're going to be very well positioned and you might not want to sell your company and that's totally fine. You, like still think about what big companies, um, how big companies are solving problems for lots of people. Because if you start modeling yourself after a big company, you're going to have better chances of becoming a big company yourself one day. So uh, find that intersection of what big companies should be doing what consumers really, really want and know they want and what you are passionate about. If you find the the intersection of those three things, you can't drag an idea into that intersection. You have to be looking for it. You have to, you have to tell yourself, I am on a journey to find the idea that's in that intersection. I'm not on a journey to just build whatever comes to mind. I'm on a journey to come up with ideas that I hope are in that intersection and do enough testing to determine whether they are or not. After after AFOG was acquired, were you able to retire if you wanted to? Uh, how was that exit for you financially? Uh, the exit was fine. It's uh, it, to me, it's not about the money. To me, uh, it's about this inner desire to prove something. It's a chip on the shoulder. It's not going away. It doesn't matter. Money is just a scoreboard. And what does that mean? Money is just a way to, you know, it's like you're playing uh, Pac-Man and it's like money is just that that number that's on the Pac-Man screen. Uh, what I do uh, and why I do it is because I have something to prove, not just to the world. I have something to prove to myself. What about the future? Uh, do you see yourself uh, starting another business anytime in the future? Uh I'm sure that the future has more businesses for me. I'm, I'm really enjoying my time uh, at CenturyLink. They treat me great, and, uh, and that's, that's something rare, uh, but, but I'm sure that, that uh, you know, the, the itch isn't gone. So my last question is, if, if, if somebody is uh, listening and, and you know, they, they, they listen to everything that we have been talking about and they want to start a business, let's say they have a job right now, uh, they don't know what to do. What would be the first thing? And they came to you for advice and say, you know, Lucas, I, I saw your success with AppFog. I, I want to strike out on my own. I want to start my own business. What would be the first thing that you think is the most important thing for them to consider or to think about before they they strike out on their own? Uh, so there's there's practical things and then there's uh, one, maybe more philosophical things. To me, my advice would be to start asking yourself why. Why is it that you actually want to strike out on yourself, because on your own? Because to me, that personal side of the journey, the personal discovery, learning about yourself and what motivates you and why you want to start another company is the most fun, most rewarding part about doing entrepreneurship. 
Um, and if you're not asking yourself that from day one, you're not going to come up with the answer. You're not going to figure it out. But if you if you don't start asking yourself why is it why is it that you actually want to do this, uh, and and know that the first answers you come up with that's not the real reason. It's much deeper than that, and you have it's a journey. But you have to dedicate yourself to be on that journey, uh, and and be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and so asking yourself why is it that you want to start a company is important. Um, the second thing is. Uh, to have to tell yourself to put yourself into the mentality of being okay with uh, understanding that not every idea you come up with is a good idea and not fall in love with your ideas and uh, to tell yourself that uh, it's it's important to realize that you are on a journey to find the right uh, startup for you that's that it's okay to have bad ideas uh, as long as you let them lead you toward better ideas. And if you have that mentality, you're not going to just fall in love with the first thing you do and quit your job and struggle at it for six months and, and go nowhere with it. If you say, okay, I'm going to have ideas, that's not going to stop me. I know that they're going to be bad ideas to start with, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I accept that reality. Uh, and I know that the bad ideas are going to lead me to better ideas. And what I'm looking for is to, uh, to, to continue that journey until I find that intersection, uh, the, the Venn diagram of two or three circles. Once I find that intersection, I'm going to dedicate my life, my purpose, my every uh, waking minute to executing on that idea and doing my best for that idea but not jumping onto that too early because you can burn yourself out. And um, if, if, you, if you start trying to build um, things that are terrible, it's, it's not a bad idea to build things that are terrible. You learn a lot in the process uh, and it'll build character. Uh, but like understand that that's just part of the journey. Like I think of startups as a craft. I think of them like, uh, like if you're a craftsman building chairs, your first chairs that you build might come out crap. They might they might turn out terrible. You know, if you were just starting out building chairs, you wouldn't expect your first chairs to to be beautiful works of art. Um, and so so don't expect your first startups to be perfect or or look great or work great or lots of people to want them. Realize that you are on a, a journey to learn more about the craft of startups. Part of that journey is to make some bad chairs in the process. And you strive to do better, you, but you understand that this this journey is the work of a lifetime. It's not the work of a few years. It's not the work of I'm going to put three years into this, get rich and retire. This is the work of uh, I need to prove something to the world. And this is the craft I choose to prove that thing to the world and to myself. Well, on that note, Lucas, I really appreciate you coming on Success Harbor today uh, to share your you know, your journey, your entrepreneurial journey. How can people either read more about your ideas or connect with you? Absolutely. The the easiest way to connect with me is to go to craftswingfounder.com uh, where you sign up for my mailing list. Uh, I email you personally every week uh, and I read every email that you give back. So if you want to connect with me, go to craftswingfounder.com, sign up for the, the blog mailing list uh, and You'll hear from me. I'll tell you more about my backstory. I'll give you more personal anecdotes that I don't put on the blog. Uh, and then if you respond to any of those emails, you have a direct email relationship with me. Thank you, Lucas. And everybody, go to craftsmanfounder.com and, and sign up for uh, Lucas's uh, email list. And um, again, thank you for, uh, for coming on Success Harbor. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thank you, George. Bye, everyone.